Hello and welcome to the Psychomedia Podcast. I am Ben Fell, and this week I alone will be discussing the metal side of psychology. That is the metal side of psychology, to wit the side of psychology relating to metal. Hopefully it'll be a little bit funny as well. Sadly, this week Tim will not be joining us. He is off doing something. Uh, we both had catastrophically busy weeks. Uh, his hopefully more fun than mine and as such have been unable to find time to put us both together in the same internet room. So instead of that, joining me this week, I have my stand-in co-host. Last time Tim recorded solo, he had an, uh, a sentient robot on his side. This week I've gone one better. I have introduced a bear to the studio because bears are the best of the animals and also are obviously the most heavy metal of all possible creatures. So, uh, it is my great pleasure to introduce my co-host for this week, Bioffy the Bear. There we go. Hello, Bioffy. How are you feeling? Oh, I see. Oh, well, gosh, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. Well, I hope that, hope that clears up quickly. Uh, Bioffy, perhaps you'd like to tell the, uh, the listeners, uh, what is your background in psychology? I see. Really? Banned, banned for life, you say? Well, that's unfortunate, but hopefully you'll be able to uh, provide us with some insightful, insightful bear perspective, perhaps the more fundamental, uh, simplistic side of psychology, the bear necessities, uh, one might say. Yeah, sorry, that one wasn't very good. You're right. Anyway, on with the podcast, which is going pretty badly already by my uh, estimation. Anyway, uh, thankfully, Tim has had a little bit of time this week to provide a dispatches from what is going in in his what is going on in his life. So uh, perhaps we should listen to that now. Hi guys, me and Ben can't talk this week because of a time vortex bubble or something. But there are a couple of things I need to fill you in on: some feedback, something I've done, and a median of the week. Um, so, feedback. This week, Michael Legg, the UK's second angriest vegan, after my brother, accepted my friend request on Last FM, and I'm pretending that that makes me his real friend. Uh, I know I've talked before about how badly I want to be on a Danielle Ward show while he's about to be on the very end of a show with her and Dave Gorman. Anyway, I sent him this message. Hey, I'm very sorry to hear about the Dave Gorman show going... I'd offer you a job on my own podcast, but I'm not sure I have any money for making that happen. And I don't know if you're especially interested in psychology. Prove me wrong. He sent me back this. Thanks, mate. Uh, he has a Northern Irish accent. I'm not going to pretend to do it. All good things must come to an end. And so does our radio show. And then there's some laughter. I will read it all out. <laughs> Brilliant. What I don't know is if he's laughing at the idea of his show being good or laughing at the idea of being on our show. What I do know is I can play a clip of him laughing for real. <laughs> now, admittedly, he's laughing at my nemesis, Richard Herring, but the point stands. 
So this week, for reasons outside of my control, for same reasons of my lack of control that mean I'm not saying this stuff to Ben, uh, I attended the World Wrestling Entertainment Monday Night Raw show at the LG Arena. At first, I somewhat engaged with it, by which I mean up until a, there was a match about the second match fe- featuring the wrestler Tensei. Tensei is a man covered in tattoos of Japanese words, a white man, a white man who is maybe pretending to be Japanese and clearly as a villain. Uh, there and then I started willing this man to win, uh, despite the fact that I knew it was foretold that he would lose. Foretold, you might ask? Well, it's a secret somewhat less than the non-live recording of the Hootenanny that the WWE is staged. And people say this sort of cliché thing, well, it takes a lot of athleticism to do all the stunts and not injure someone. And while this may be true, what the experience at seeing this live revealed to me is, is that WWE is much faker when it's live. There's no sound. There's no contact, or at least very rarely, so there's no sound. And you're not seeing things from a camera angle, but an audience angle. And stage perch punches do not really work in a auditorium where there is a three-sided audience. Um, so it's fake. It's got these dubious racial ideas that really only got worse over the night. Later wrestlers' gimmicks turned out to be being a Jamaican, being an Irish, being a Mexican, in some horrendously offensive stereotypical ways. The worst part is I've just discovered is that this fellow, Tensei, real name, Matt Bloom, has a degree in sign language and used to be a special needs teacher. So that guy's gone from being that to being a fake Japanese non-sumo wrestler, which makes me sad. So, racial stereotypes, we After this came perhaps the most evil person I've seen in the flesh in terms of the contribution against humanity, Chairman Vince McMahon, a man who spent uh, over $100 million in failed Republican election campaigns, a man who's anti-organised labour and anti-healthcare, which isn't provided for wrestlers. Uh, and then came the, the worst bit, the one woman's match. One women, it's confusing, plural, singular thing. Ouch. It made me, sh- it makes me, actually, to this moment, shudder to think of it. If the fight itself was creepy and sexualised, that said nothing of the crowd's reaction. Constant wolf whistling and catcalling. I, I was sitting next to a guy uh, with two youngish boys. No, he persuaded it was time to go get a snack and a drink. But it was quite clear that what he was really saying is, I don't want my sons to see or experience this. So despite all of that kind of horror, it was quite the experience. Uh, when it was actually vaguely competitive and didn't have any ethnic problems, I did find myself supporting a side despite myself, although often I was supporting whoever I thought narratively had no chance of winning. Uh, so there you go. A report of what I have done this week, which I thought I would never make. So finally, a quick major item that needs no promotion at all. That is, of course, Skyfall. And it is great. Mendes strikes that balance of humorous and wry with dark and emotional action. His visual spectacle is unquestionable. I saw his Tempest in London with Man Crush Christian Camargo as Ariel in a spectacular dress or a huge metal angel suit and all sorts of other visual flourishes that you get in this film. There's the abandoned island, the Scottish estate, London, Macau, Shanghai, Istanbul, all look incredible. What I still don't like is Javier Bardem. The trouble is is that Anton Chigger from No Country for Old Men hangs over every moment of his performance, which, whilst very different, sort of strange, creepy, campy, but brutal villainy, was just nothing in comparison to the implacable assassin. He didn't seem to be in any way the mirror of Bond, which he's supposed to be for the plot, although I'm now quite wanting to see a uh, Bond film where Timothy Dalton plays a former double-O agent villain. And, of course, I want to see Idris Elba for Bond anyway. Judy Dench is excellent. Eve is a brilliant character, but her development at the end makes this film even more to me than it was originally The 007 Rises. I'll explain. 
He's been away slash dead for a while. He comes back when a man who is his mirror returns to the city he loves and has a secret plan involving the underground and a personal vendetta due to their mentor. And then there's a more regular guy, in this case girl, helping him, who's revealed at the very end to be part of the mythos, and he has a back problem, means he's physically weaker than he was, and... My major problem with the film was the bit where Bond arrives on the yacht of a woman who he's identified as a former child sex slave and approaches her while she's showering and has sex with her. Maybe very uncomfortable. I feel Fleming might have done a scene like that, but he'd have made very clear that it was because Bond is a psychopath and that's not a good thing to do, guys. Otherwise, very positive. I love the bit where Eve, Bond and Mallory team up. Obviously, Q was great. The end, indeed, as many people, was a bit home alone. Uh... The inconspicuous car was just a fantastic bit. I wasn't spoilt on that. Um, I don't think what I've done there is spoil it, so if you haven't seen (laughs) that bit, just great. I really, really liked it. I could laugh away the stupid product placement. I enjoyed the plot and the acting, and I'm interested to see what direction the Craig Bond will go with in the next villain. As it stands, the perfect 50th anniversary film. And now I will hand you back to the trustworthy Ben to do a proper um, demi-episode. Goodbye. Well, thank you for that, Tim. Uh, Bioffi, what do you what do you think of uh, of all this wrestling larky? Oh gosh, you 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 tried it once. Oh wow, gosh. Well, that that explains a lot, I suppose. But what did you wear? I mean, did they give you one of those like leotard things? Oh, oh dear. Well, that is that is rather unfortunate. Anyway, uh, thanks to Tim for his, his contribution, such as it was. Uh, glad to hear he enjoyed Skyfall as much as me. Uh, so I suppose I should crack on with the things that I've done this week and my media of the week. I haven't got any feedback this week, unfortunately, but I think Tim has provided that for us suitably. The thing that I did this week was attend a fireworks play in my home village. Uh, it was extremely enjoyable and an excellent display, really, really good. My village is very small. Uh, it's about a mile... It's a small triangle in the southeast of England, about a mile round in circumference. If triangles have circumferences, I don't think they do. Anyway, it's a very small village, uh, and for one night every year we have uh, this fireworks play, which attracts huge numbers of people from all around the county, and is probably the most people that ever descend on the village at any one time, which it, it really isn't designed to withhold that many people. Withhold? Just hold that many people. Anyway, it was a really awesome display. We had delicious hot dogs, delicious sausage meat. There were children waving things around and fighting with glow sticks. Uh, we played with the sparklers, we stole sparklers, we brought sparklers home. And we went to the pub afterwards. So all round an excellent evening. Uh, one which I will hopefully repeat. It's been too long. Uh, I suppose. Well, I mean, Yoffy, do you do you like fireworks? Ah, oh, yeah. Well, uh, that that does make a lot of sense. Uh, oh, uh, I, I see. Uh, they they remind you of the tormented souls of your vanquished foes, burning in hell for all eternity. Um, well, yes, I agree. The hot dogs are great as well. Fair enough. Well, I suppose that leads us neatly on to the media of the week. Bioffi, I take it you don't have any media that you've brought along, do you? Well, you know, I did mention that you should, but uh, never mind. We'll we'll just go with mine. My media this week is uh, appropriate enough for a heavy metal episode. Uh, a new band that I've discovered. They are called The Sword. They play a kind of uh, slightly progressive, bluesy, infused metal uh 
kind of slightly reminiscent of a sort of heavier ZZ Top. They remind me actually a lot of probably one of, if not my favourite band, uh, Blue Oyster Cult, who I believe I've mentioned on the podcast before. Uh, and they're really excellent. They have the they they give the one of these bands that gives the impression that they are all colossal nerds who have also learned how to play very very good heavy metal. Um, a lot of my favourite bands fall into that category. Anyway, yes, The Sword. They've got their latest album called Apocryphon, which has tracks on it called things like The Chronomancer. So that should appeal to some of you. Uh, their album before that was also called Warp Riders, which is probably my favourite. So yeah, give them a try. The Sword, very, very, very good. Anyway, without further ado, we should probably crack on with The Psychology. And so to The Metal, and hopefully The Psychology. As many of you are probably aware, we are currently in what might be termed the build-up to Christmas. And as part of this build-up, the girlfriend and I are spending much of our time exchanging ideas for presents. Uh, Present buying is quite a big deal in my family. It's quantity and quality is very much paramount, to the extent that my parents have had to impose upper limits on the number of presents they buy for each other, uh, which is frankly awesome. Anyway, one of the... uh, well, I say one of many of the present ideas that are flying back and forth between me and the girlfriend are t-shirts from the internet. We're both slightly addicted to shirts with nerdy slogans on relating to various things, uh, as I'm so sure many of you are too. And one of the t-shirts I found the other day had a picture of a large freestanding fan on it with the caption, Huge Metal Fan, which tickled me on a number of levels. Uh, two, to be exact. One, it's a pun, and two, it relates to heavy metal. I suppose you could add a third in that it was quite a nice picture of the fan. Anyway, this would be an entirely appropriate t-shirt for me to wear because, as it describes, I am a huge metal fan. I have been a huge metal fan since my early teens, and it, it is pretty universally the the main genre of music that I listen to. There are other things, as Tim will attest. There's a lot of sort of ambient and... I have a guilty liking for an awful lot of painfully awful pop music, but I would definitely characterise myself as a metalhead, and appearance will bear that out. Anyway, while Tim is away, I thought I'd take this opportunity to find out what this love of metal and the heavier end of rock music has been doing to my brain for the last 18 or so years. Beyond the obvious 18 years, that's far too many. Let's say the last 10 years. what it's been doing to my brain beyond the obvious loss of auditory sensitivity and mild tinnitus, uh, which I'm not joking about. My hearing is very bad. It was once described by a quite disappointed audition researcher as like that of a 40-year-old man. Anyway, metal or heavy metal is uh, defined by the Oxford English Dictionary as a type of loud, vigorous rock music characterised by the use of electronically amplified instruments, typically guitar, bass and drums, a heavy, usually fast beat, intense or spectacular performance, and often a clashing, harsh musical style. Wikipedia describes heavy metal uh, in the following terms. Heavy metal, often referred to simply as metal, is a genre of rock music that developed in the late 1960s and early 70s, largely in the United Kingdom and the United States. Snates? I'll take another run at that, shall I? Heavy metal, often referred to simply as metal, is a genre of rock music that developed in the late 1960s and early 1970s, largely in the United Kingdom and the United States. 
With roots in blues rock and psychedelic rock, the bands that created heavy metal developed a thick, massive sound characterized by highly amplified distortion, extended guitar solos, emphatic beats, and overall loudness. Heavy metal lyrics and performance styles are generally associated with masculinity and machismo. So there we go. That is uh, what heavy metal is. That is what we are talking about. And now we will proceed to the psychology. Uh, well, actually, I suppose. Uh, Bioffi, what do you think of heavy metal? Ah, oh, I, I, all bears. Really? All bears love it. Oh, I see. Well, uh... Yeah. Oh, how fascinating. I, I suppose that does make sense. I mean, bears are the awesomest animals. And metal is the awesomest music, so I guess it makes sense that those would uh, naturally go together. Ah, that is a good point, too. I, I guess it's true. Bears do tend to live in northern climes and everyone knows the best metal comes from places where the weather is terrible. Uh, well, thanks for that, Bioffi. Um, actually, on the subject of uh, electronic bears and metal, uh, I looked into this because it seemed to me that there really ought to be some metal bands out there who sing about bears, or at least who have bears in the name, because they are such an intrinsically metal animal. Not actually metal that this is going to be a source of some ambiguity if we keep making that distinction uh, so for the time being let's say that they are not bears made of metal they are merely metal bears anyway i did find one uh, unsigned belgian death metal band simply called bear but they were relatively boring unless you like that sort of thing much more excitingly there is a russian folk metal band uh, and as some of you may know folk metal is basically my favorite genre of metal and they are called beer bear and they sing songs about beer and bears, unsurprisingly, uh, with track titles like Mother Bear or Honey, or from their latest album, and I think my favourite, Drink and Revel, Bears Gentry! Exclamation uh, mark. So based on that alone, you should definitely check them out, Boffy. And uh, we'll put links to their vari those respective MySpace pages in the show notes. I highly suggest you go and check out the Beer Bear MySpace page, even if you're not interested in the music simply because of the uh, art that they present at the top of the page, which, in consistent with their lyrics and song titles, is pretty literal on the subject of beers and bear. Beers and bear? Bears and beer, even. Anyway, enough of this. Let's get on with some psychology. So I suppose when asked about heavy metal and psychology, most people not involved with either would probably expect that listening to such hyper-masculine, aggressive music would probably increase levels of aggression or maybe like anarchic behaviour. And there may be some experimental backing to this idea. For example, uh, there's a study by uh, Arnett in 1991 called Heavy Metal Music and Reckless Behaviour Among Adolescents in the Journal of Youth and Adolescence. Um, Arnett recruited some adolescents through a record store and also a high school and asked them questions about their musical preferences and their behaviour. The most significant effects found were on measures of sensation-seeking behaviour, where the metalheads generally showed greater sensation-seeking and reckless behaviour compared to those who didn't like heavy metal. The, these behaviours included things like reckless driving, drug usage and sexual behaviour. Now, this is a fairly kind of neat self-contained study, and it, but it highlights one of the many problems with the, much of the existing research on metal, in my mind at least, namely that it's impossible to determine any kind of direction of causality here. Um, in fact, I mean, it seems pretty reasonable to say that listening to heavy metal itself is a kind of 
sensational behavior. So someone who is a sensation seeker is likely to seek it out. Uh, you know, it's a highly arousing form of music. By this logic, all this study can really tell us is that sensation-seeking individuals seek sensation. Heavy metal is a form of sensation, and it can fall into the same category as reckless driving or drug use. Uh, what it doesn't say is whether specifically listening to heavy metal has the same kind of negative side effects as reckless driving and drug use can, um, or whether starting someone off listening to heavy metal might influence their tendency to seek sensation independent of their own predispositions, which is quite complicated to achieve experimentally. Um, there is another study I found, uh, one by Goen Smith and Bloom in 1997, and it found that emotional responses to metal were significantly modulated by musical preference. Preference. This is a hugely important consideration as well, not only the ideas of causality, but preference. Of course, someone who only listens to classical music will experience a negative reaction if you play them Cannibal Corpse, but, you know, someone who likes Cannibal Corpse probably be quite happy with it. Now, Gonstein and Bloom found that although arousal was increased for all participants who listened to a section of heavy metal, those who expressed preferences for it showed no increase in levels of anger after listening. This pattern of preference modulation is something I found repeated again and again and again in the literature. And actually, this is quite a nice example of an experiment because it works on an experimental rather than on a purely correlational basis. Another negative behaviour that's often linked with heavy metal is suicidal tendencies. Much of metal's lyrical content is extremely dark and disturbing to unfamiliar ears. It's pretty much, obviously it's pretty much impossible for a complete outsider to appreciate the attraction of these lyrics, but it may be possible to test whether kind of continual exposure, exposure to these dark themes has any negative consequences. So, there is a study by uh, Scheele and Westfield in 1999, and they tested 121 high school students. Um, and amongst those who expressed a preference for heavy metal, they found that the males uh, showed less reasons for living, in quotation marks, on some questionnaire measure. And amongst females, there were more thoughts of suicide. Seems, once again, pretty clear-cut. However, the authors point out that for all students in their sample, listening to music, whatever it was and whatever their preference, was reported as a means of improving mood. So, amongst their specific sample of uh, metalheads, listening, presumably listening to their preferred music, was also a means of improving mood. They concluded, very balancedly, I thought, balancedly, is that a word? They concluded in a very balanced manner that although metal may be, in their words, a red flag for suicide risk, it's unlikely to be a causal factor. And the suggestion that listening to music improves uh, emotional state may even indicate that it's kind of used as a form of self-therapy for those who have depressive or suicidal thoughts. Who knows? It's difficult to tell from this study, but it's an interesting suggestion. Suggestion which was followed up upon by a guy called Wooten, which is a wonderful name, Wooten, uh, 1992, in a study called The Effects of Heavy Metal Music on Affect Shifts of Adolescence in an Inpatient Psychiatric Setting. So what Wooten did, he experimentally investigated the effects of heavy metal uh, and critically accounted for musical preference whilst doing so. He tested 35 adolescent female psychiatric patients and presented them with pieces of rock or metal music, and then assessed their change in emotional state by various questionnaires and such. 
Now they found he found no overall effects in the sample, but when he took into account musical preference, he, Wooten found that participants who liked heavy metal showed significant increases in positive affect after the listening experience, suggesting, in concert with the Scheele and Westfield study, that listening to your musical preference, whatever it is, in this case listening to heavy metal, improves your emotional state. And in this case it's particularly significant because he's looking at psychiatric impatience, so those who presumably have demonstrated uh, potentially self-harmful behavioural tendencies, and in this case is sort of showing some degree of therapeutic benefit. So I thought that was quite interesting. And the picture building up at this stage seems to be that although metal itself might not cause behavioural and social problems, uh, those with sensation-seeking or depressive tendencies may be drawn to it, perhaps as a kind of self-medication. Based on this, though, and the correlations with these societally bad behavioural tendencies, one might expect that metalheads generally might have problems in school, for example, uh, consistent this, with this kind of rebellious and anarchic streak that seems to be prevalent and is certainly part of the stereotype about those who enjoy heavy metal. There have been a couple of studies who looked at this kind of academic performance and intelligence. So uh, two authors, Took and Weiss, Weiss, investigated musical preference for both metal and rap music, actually, um, particularly its effects on psychological function. They found correlations, so once again a correlational study, uh, between both these forms of music with uh, below average school grades, behavioural problems, sexual activity, drug and alcohol use and arrest. Uh, rates of arrest. However, when they included gender as a covariate in their sample, the only correlations that remained significant were between rap and metal preference and below average school grades and having a history of counselling. It would seem, therefore, that much of the variance in the kind of sensation-seeking, risky, destructive behaviours that Arnett originally described to be associated with heavy metal, much of this variance is accounted for by the fact that the majority, though by no means all metalheads, are male. Um, what this study doesn't tell us about is non-academically measured intelligence, or perhaps intelligence in its kind of fundamental form rather than just academic capability or the ability to do well in school. However, once again, psychology comes to the rescue. There is a study by Walker and Kreiner, 2006, relationship of music preferences with perceived intelligence, measured intelligence, and mood state. Uh, in this study, this was looking at a whole host of uh, musical preferences, all different kinds of music, and effect, uh, investigating the effects on intelligence. And it was found that uh, expressing a preference for heavy metal actually predicted slightly higher IQ, particularly uh, on measures of abstract thinking. So, you know, this is kind of cool. Once again, consistent with this slightly anarchic stereotype. You can kind of see how it's all fitting together if you choose to do so, though obviously there's not very much empirical evidence for it all linking up. Unfortunately, there isn't much research in this area that I can see. It's sort of studies here and there, correlational, some experimental, often on quite small sample sizes. So it's very much getting a, a fuzzy picture uh, emerging, but it seemed relatively consistent. There's one final study that uh, kind of almost ties up all of these things we've been talking about, the depressive or suicidal tendencies, the uh, maybe not so much the sensation-seeking, but certainly the intelligence. 
It was a survey done in the University of Warwick uh, in 2007, where they recorded a, a, over a thousand students' um, musical preferences and various other psychological factors. They found uh, a consistent uh, a correlation between uh, preference for metal music and low self-esteem and kind of the, the depressive end of the uh, spectrum as identified previously. But they also did follow-up interviews with a group of a small sample of 19 gifted students who had expressed a preference for men metal music. So these are people who, contrary to what might be indicated by those previous correlational studies, do very well in academia and yet express preference for metal consider themselves metalheads. Well, actually, they tested this, and the students didn't actually identify themselves as metalheads, but they identify with a lot of aspects of the subculture. Anyway, these students reported that they explicitly used metal as a form of catharsis. They listened to it when they were stressed or anxious as a means of relieving tension, and I personally can completely uh, identify with this myself. The times when I'm most drawn to the more extreme ends of my music collection are when I'm stressed, like this week, for example, which perhaps explains my, my, why my media of this week, this week was a loud, raucous metal band. So there we go. I mean, it's not a exceedingly experimentally rigorous field, as far as I can tell. There's some good stuff in there. There's a lot of stuff which is open to uh, selective interpretation. But it would seem, broadly speaking, that People with predispositions for sensation-seeking behavior, possibly those predispositions for depression, are somehow drawn to heavy metal. Far from causing behavioral problems, when tested experimentally, it would seem that listening to metal actually can have positive effects on those who enjoy it, which is unsurprising. Otherwise, you kind of wonder why they'd listen to it. This seems to me an entirely reasonable conclusion, based on some sparse but relatively solid experimental evidence. Obviously, as I said, many of these studies have significant flaws, but given the rather nebulous nature of the topic, that's perhaps unsurprising. So, that would seem to me to make a positive, slightly uplifting note upon which to end the show. If you like metal, carry on listening to it. It's probably doing you some good rather than any specific harm, except with relation to your hearing. If you don't like heavy metal, don't worry, no one's going to force you to listen to it. Unfortunately, there are people who want to force you to listen to it, or are stupid enough to think that people are forced to listen to it. And so I'm not going to end on this point. I'm going to finish by discussing some truly abysmal, pointless and blinkered approaches to metal music that have been perpetrated and that I came across in researching this. Uh, these studies, uh, and I use the term loosely, relate to the effects of metal on those renowned connoisseurs of alternative music genres, plants and mice. So first, a study, or rather a science project, carried out by a 17-year-old high schooler, which is nonetheless reported on a lot of summary pages of effects of heavy metal. Thankfully, this was only published on the website of the Schiller Institute, an institute whose exact purpose I cannot quite work out, but it seems to have something to do with reintroducing the principles of an 18th century German philosopher to modern life for no adequately explored reason. One of the ways it seemingly chooses to do this is by encouraging poorly thought out experiments from high schoolers. So the high schooler in question, name and shame, is called David Merrill. Uh, he carried out this experiment and he reports how he bought some mice from a local pet store. 
He put them in mazes, he played some of them classical music, and he played some of them Anthrax, the notable thrash metal band. Uh, he, you know, in, um, in, in describing this experiment, he shows admirable scientific rigor he selected these when selecting the stimuli to use, saying, We just went to Kmart and asked the clerk behind the desk, what's a good heavy metal group? Uh, Apparently, the clerk thought that Anthrax was the correct answer to that question. He is, of course, wrong. Anyway, regarding the classical music, uh, he goes on to say, it didn't matter which one, just as long as it was classical. Excellent sampling of stimuli there. Uh, but we won't go into that any further. Anyway, unfortunately, he was unable to complete his first study, since the rats in the Anthrax condition had eaten each other by the end of the third week. Now, this seems deeply significant. What about what about all the kids in America listening to listening to anthrax? Are, are they going to start eating each other? That seems the only logical conclusion to this. I mean, it surely has nothing to do with the fact that in the specific experimental conditions, David was exposing the mice to 24-hour constant blasts of anthrax at 90 decibels. That surely is a totally uh, ecologically valid form of experimental manipulation and certainly isn't akin to some kind of torture. I mean, for comparison, that's only about the loudness of a pneumatic drill, or incidentally, as I learnt yesterday, only slightly louder than the cat with the loudest purr in the world. As an aside, just before we get back to the bullshit psychology, Smokey, the loudest cat in the world, can produce a purr of 80 decibels. There is a video of YouTube on YouTube of Smokey the cat. Apparently most cats purr at around 25 decibels, but Smokey's powerful purrs average an, av an amazing 80 decibels. I'm quoting here from the YouTube page. Equivalent to the noise of a hairdryer, or it is claimed a Boeing 737 coming into land. So uh, yes, Smokey the cat, very loud. Uh, also anthrax, very loud, and slightly cruel to play, well, very cruel to play to mice 24 hours constantly. Now, of course, I'm not saying that cruel things aren't done to mice in the pursuit of psychological research, but it does seem that in this particular case has been rather extraordinarily pointless to uh, expose innocent creatures to such horrible, horrible stimuli uh, as anthrax, you know. Anyway, David went on to do a second version of the experiment with new mice and uh, a new complete absence of ethical approval. These mice in the second phase were genetically homogeneous, homogeneous, rather than just being bought from a pet shop, so I suppose that's slightly better at least. And these ones were exposed to a mere 10 solid hours of 70 decibel music, just like the average metalhead listens to. Uh, in this marginally improved second phase, he found that by the end of the four weeks, the metal mice were still pretty bad at the maze while the classical and control mice had learned it without difficulty. In summarising his pointless foray into animal cruelty, David said, It's been an interesting project, and I've enjoyed doing it, and I've enjoyed the results I've found, as well as the research I've done. Well, I'm glad to hear that, David. I'm sure the mice enjoyed it too when they were eating each other. Uh, he also discussed the potential ramifications of playing anthrax to mice, saying, it's too bad that it's not a subject that is widely publicised, as widely as it should be, because I found multiple areas of research which are extremely significant. Whether it's how great the effects of classical music are on preschoolers learning their, uh, their ABCs, or whether it's just the bad morals in the hard rock music. Something very interesting is that these mice could not understand the lyrics, but the music alone was bad enough, much less the lyrics, which the people are subjected to. 
but the mice weren't. And that's something I think is pretty significant as well. Well, setting aside the poor grammar, which may not necessarily be his fault, that is, you know, that is that is pretty serious, isn't it? When you think about it, I mean, he was, of course, presumably referring to those many American institutions where preschool children are forced to listen to anthrax for 10 hours a day. It does sound horrible. I mean, anthrax aren't even that good. Anyway, the second bullshit study builds upon the strong foundation of pointlessness established by David and his mice by managing to find a target group for whom it would be even more irrelevant to investigate the effects of heavy metal. Plants. This study was carried out by, in 1973 by Dorothy Retelak. She investigated the effects of playing various forms of music to plants, presumably while suffering from a pathological case of chronic nothing-better-to-do-itis. She found that when, playing the, when she played the music of Led Zeppelin and Jimi Hendrix, the plants grew angled away from the speakers, more so than a comparison group who played the sound of steel drums, controlling for the percussive elements of those music, that music. Now, there were various other uh, musical types that Dorothy played to the plants, and they produced differing levels of growing towards or away from the speakers, and it's mildly interesting. I'm not going to go into it in detail here, because it's not really relevant. Anyway, as I say, this is vaguely interesting. And to be honest, the results of the mice study are actually quite interesting. Why, what it is about this music, other than the stupidly loud levels and the fact that it was played for 10 to 24 hours a day, what is it about those stimuli that caused this aversive reaction in mice and plants? I mean, it's kind of irrelevant that it's metal or rock or whatever, but it, it's kind of interesting. Obviously, I, I can find no indication that either of these two effects have ever been replicated in something approaching control conditions, but, you know, it's still, you know, what is going on there? What is actually happening? It, the thing is, in the case of David's metal mice, is the inter interpretation of the results that's willfully ignorant and stupid, but, you know, whatever. He was a 17-year-old student from Virginia, maybe we should let him off. However, when I came across the plant experiments, the context in which they were presented was so weird and creepy that I felt duty-bound to share its particular brand of insanity with you, dear Psychomedia listener. These experiments were detailed on a website called dovesong.com, which belongs to a gentleman, music lover, and doomsday cultist called Don Robertson. The stated aim of Don Robertson and dovesong.com is to promote what he calls positive music. Now, what is positive music, you may very well ask. Well, I'm sure Don Robertson would like to tell you, but before he does, he would, and I quote, like to make it clear that he is not talking about a particular style of music when he talks about positive music, nor is he just talking about happy music. Happy music is certainly positive, but sad music can be positive also. Insightful words, I'm sure you'll agree, but you may very well ask, rather more insistently this time, what is positive music? Well, Quoth Dan Robertson, There is just one thing that positive music is not. It is not negative. Negative music invokes emotions such as frustration, anger, suspense, horror, fear, and states of mind such as mental exhaustion and anxiety. Positive music invokes emotions such as love, joy, hope, peace, and states of mind such as stability, self-worth, and tolerance. Okay, you may very well say, backing slightly away and looking for someone more interesting to talk to. So why is positive music important? Surely it's just a matter of taste. Oh, but it isn't, Don Robertson would surely reply. 
And he would go on to say, perhaps I can illustrate with an excerpt from my blog, Don Robertson's Tumblr mini-blog, uh, in particular from this sensitive, thoughtful and respectful piece I wrote on the day that Michael Jackson died. In this post, Don Robertson describes how he was in a Parisian restaurant at the time, minding his own business, when a waiter came up and commented that the death of the King of Pop was le dommage. I will read you this section so that you know that I am not making it up. I told him that I was from the United States, and he told me that he'd made a trip there once, and he named a number of cities where he had visited – Chicago, Cleveland, Philly, New York, and so on. He said that at the time he was working for and travelled with a French soccer team. He asked me why I was in Paris, and I told him that I was a composer, and that I was here to meet musicians and composers, and to go to concerts. Hearing this, he began to tell me what a shame it was about Michael Jackson. C'est dommage. I was supposed to agree with him, but I refused. I had decided that I would not put up with all this mourning for Michael Jackson. I had had enough. As I told him that I didn't like Michael Jackson and his music, I watched the man's face register shocked disappointment. He asked me why, and I told him that Michael Jackson had created destructive music, and that it had opened the door to hip-hop that was now circled around the world and was destroying so many musical cultures. Well, he told me in French, it was all a matter of taste. I wasn't going to deal with that comment, so I shook his hand and walked away. Meanwhile, one repulsive video after another blasted loudly and proudly into the restaurant from the high-definition television set behind me. I was certain that almost everyone around me agreed with this kindly old man. But it is not a matter of taste. It is a matter of survival, and life on this planet is doomed if we can't figure this out. This is because, due to the property of resonance and the direct harmonic correlation with everything and everyone, music is much more powerful than most people realise. Ladies and gentlemen, the destructive music that was created during the 20th century is affecting us all. If we don't change the music, then little else will change. It's that simple. And perhaps every song that Michael Jackson sang was not destructive, but all I can say is the music was I was having to put up with in this $9 a cup restaurant was. So, all ye who pay tribute to the King of Pop, I take offence. You pay tribute to a mentally ill zombie who took millions of your dollars to build a playground to lure children into a den of molestation, then spend more millions of money to keep himself out of prison, a place where many have been sent for decades just for the offences of having photos that they had downloaded onto their computers. What kind of hypocrisy is this? My job is to help the world change its music. I've been working on this for 40 years. I am not going to pretend that I am in mourning, when in fact I am repulsed. The time for change has come! I felt quite awkward reading that. Anyway, so there you see. Don Robertson believes that negative music is destroying the world, and that the only way to save it is through positive music. He also has some rather interesting ideas about the incarceration of people with paedophilic material on their computers, but perhaps it's best not to go into that. I could read more quotes from his website and blogs, for instance from the article where he dubs Michael Jackson the Dark Lord, or where he teaches you how to recognise negative music. Actually, I'm going to read that one. It begins, Listen carefully to contemporary music. Does the music use ugly sounds? Are the guitars channeled through electronic devices to purposefully distort their sound? Are the rhythms grating, sexually stimulating? If I'd managed to find music that was sexually stimulating, I would listen to it constantly. Anyway, that's the last of it. 
I know at the end of the day that Don Robertson is just one single, deeply deluded, repressed and ignorant man, but that's, and that he's not really hurting anyone, even Michael Jackson, who Lord knows has other things to worry about. But all that aside, dear, intelligent, thoughtful and above all open-minded Psychomedia listeners, all that aside, I would be very grateful if you could all now go to Don Robertson's blog at www.musicfuturist.net and post as many YouTube links to Cannibal Corpse songs as you possibly can. Based on the findings of David Merrill, I hope that this constant exposure to heavy metal will cause Don Robertson to eat himself. Thank you. Well, that is all for this week's Demi podcast. Uh, hopefully the relentless negativity of the ending wasn't too much, and hopefully the mildly interesting points about heavy metal will be of interest to you. Uh, at least some of you, perhaps those of you who like heavy metal. Hopefully we will both be back next week for some proper duo psychology. Uh, I'd like to thank my stand-in co-host Bioffy. Yes, Bioffy. Uh, if you have any feedback on this or any other episode, uh, please email us at uh, psychomediapodcast uh, at gmail.com. Yes, Bioffy, that's right. They can find us on Twitter at at Team Psychomedia. Yes. Yes, I was getting to that. Of course they can comment on the WordPress page. Yes, it's psychomedia.wordpress.org. Or they can reach us on Facebook. Uh, Facebook.com slash psychomedia, I guess. Whatever it is. Anyway, do send us feedback on anything from this or previous episodes. Until next time, bye-bye. There's power metal, cello metal, gothic and symphonic metal, metal that's experimental, even medieval metal, pagan, folk and Celtic metal, fun control and viking metal, rap and crust and trash and theme and groove and glam and stone and metal. There's metal that's progressive, post or even neoclassical. There's some that's new that's felt and new and sounds quite like industrial. There's versions of death metal, both melodical and technical. And even Christian metal that is really quite respectable. There's new metal that's gloomy, sludgy, droney, or funereal. There's grindcore, gore, and porn, and grind with lyrics quite venereal. There's metal core, Nintendo core, and math core for the metal nerds, or death core, death grind, black, and death, or death and roll if death's preferred. There's many types of metal, from extreme to more traditional. It's a frankly fucking foolish task to try and learn to list them all. <laughs> <laughs>